it felt so, so painful. And that that's, you know, we're talking about grief. I experienced it in a different way in that moment. Like, I'm going to have to let go of this guy while he's still here. Did you? Yeah, I did. So, Jessica. Yeah. Call you Jessica? Yeah. All right, cool. We got that box checked. (laughs) Um, So... I, you lost, are you, you lose both your parents? Yes, I am an orphan. My father passed in October 2018 and my mom died in November 2020. You said 2018 and 2020? Yes. And your father, I'll let you tell the story so I don't make any mistakes, but it was all, he had Alzheimer's? He had Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. I say it because it's the Beyonce of dementia, but he really had vascular dementia, we think, which is brought on by a stroke and is a much more aggressive form of dementia. So from diagnosis to death, it was only a year. Okay. Of us dealing with the actual diagnosis. But for decades before, the disease creeps in. Interesting. In forms of, you know, forgetfulness and placing keys in the fridge and forgetting names. And it's just these, like, little droplets of of the disease letting you know it's there. Just kind of like if there were a footprint in your carpet, you know, that wasn't yours. You're like, who the fuck would just walk through this place with one footprint? <laughs> so yeah. it's just like these little um, imprints that are left. And we just chopped it up to dad being dad. All the times we we referred to him like that came like rushing back to us when we actually had a solid diagnosis. We were like, oh, fuck. That wasn't dad being dad. That was dad being demented. Wow. That was dementia being dad. So it's a it's a cre I, I called I called dementia and Alzheimer's like a snake in the grass. It's a sneaky, quiet disease. But it's good to do stuff like this to make the symptoms louder to talk about it and to let people know what the what the warning signs are. And it's the number six cause of death in our country, which is shocking. Well, I, I had no idea it was that high. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, it's commonly heard, so I mm-hmm. knew it was common, but I still didn't know the l- level ranked that high. So if you had those signs earlier where you chalked it up to his dad being dad, is there anything people can, if you do get those signs earlier, is there, is it, can you stop it? Can you do anything? Right now, they're, they're really, there's no cure. And I don't like that word anyways. I, I talk about this, like, I don't like the word cure because for there to be a cure, there still needs to be a disease. Uh, to me, the word cure is a word that the, the medical industry needs because it's the business side of it because they can they can prescribe a cure. A prevention is something that sort of puts a lot of pharmaceutical companies' products out of business. And so it's such a larger conversation of how to prevent it. There's so many ways to prevent it. It's, it there's lifestyle factors. There's environmental fra- factors, stress factors. Diet is huge. I mean, our American diet is so processed. And you and I are probably, you know, we're lucky, but we also grew up post-industrial revolution we're, with packaged food. I don't know about you, but I had packaged food in the house. Everything came in, in a fucking cardboard box in a plastic bag. Nothing mooed or meowed, and not that we're eating cats. But yeah. a, a uh, cat would have been healthier than a fucking box of Fruit Loops. I'm allergic to cats, so I probably would have went with the Fruit Loops. But <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify. Okay, fair, fair. That's your journey. That's my. That, <laughs> two minutes ago, you just said you don't want to sound LA, and I know, so that far, was so you, LA. Yeah, you're off that's track. That's the most LA thing you can say. That's your journey. I'm really happy for your journey. I know, but I kind of learned to like it because it's right. You know, it's, it's kind of it's very nice to say. But go on. Um. 
<laughs> there's there's so many ways to prevent it, but the most important thing I think for prevention is movement. I think movement is like a big part of preventing so many of the diseases that that ravage us in, in this American culture, you know, like heart disease and diabetes and uh, dementia. These are like, you know, the three main causes of death in our country, along with like, you know, just different issues with the heart. All of this has to do with inflammation, with stress on our body, oxidative stress, all of these things that our body is constantly fighting off because we're putting things in that are causing this alarm system to go off. And when that happens, your body's flooded with cortisol and, and, and it's not able to replenish your nutrients and, and deliver the nutrients that you need to your organs. It's, it's in survival mode and that causes a lot of, you know, issues down the road. So movement is so key. It's, it's, it's one of the most important things. It gets, your, it gets the cobwebs out of your mind, out of your body. Um, Eating healthy, obviously, that's so hard because who doesn't love chocolate cake? <laughs> me, me and Matilda, cake. yeah, I love it. Are you kidding me? Like, it's the best. Yeah, I, I mean, I believe in moderation. Like, I, I like, but I think the number one thing for me is it's just managing stress. Like, yes, all those things are important. They're all kind of you know they're all contributing factors. But at the end of the day, stress is just. Like, there's a book uh, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Mm -hmm. I may mention before the first chapter talks about. Might butcher this story, Malcolm, if you're not listening. Um, or he might be. Maybe. I, I, not with that attitude. <laughs> my, my, Malcolm, thank you for listening to this episode. There we go. Malcolm, thank you for being on this podcast. Manifestation. Uh, the first chapter, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i be quick with it, mentioned something about this Italian family that moved to, got to America, and that community stayed within the same community. And they were eating, as Italians do, like a lot of meats and whatever it was that probably wasn't the most healthy thing at mm -hmm. the time. Not that meat isn't, I'm not going to go down that road. And- they apparently live prosperous, and their uh, their community was so strong. They used to like, share each other's kids and watch each other. It was just very, it's a very solid community. And then I think the same people that immigrated that were a certain amount of miles away were like dying off for mm. X, Y, and Z. But the studies that he found was they were the outlier because they had community. They live with less stress, even though maybe they didn't eat as healthy. The stress seemed to capitalize over other quote unquote bad habits. If that makes sense. Yeah, stress is stress management is definitely probably one of the top ways to prevent a majority of the diseases that we get. And I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. We've researched, we've experienced stuff that has propelled us into this world of curiosity. And that's all the information I have came from, is curi a curious mind and, and also not wanting to succumb to what my father and mother you know, were sick from. But um, yeah, stress management is huge. That also shoots cortisol into your body and that just it affects your blood-brain barrier, your gut. Everything is so jacked up from stress. And it's as simple as, like, if you get into an argument, go for a jog. Something to, to jostle up that energy that is soon to be stored in your body. Yeah, that's a good and way to put it. Sleep. I know we've heard this. This is not anything that's new. Sleep is so fucking important. It is the most important thing. It is, it is the holy grail of youth. It's the holy grail of health, of being able to be cognitively sharp and also just a mood balancer. It's Now I, I value sleep over anything. Like if it were to go out and hang out with my friends or get to bed earlier, I'm the, I'm the bitch who's going to bed earlier. I'm so boring. Being healthy is so fucking boring. <laughs> yeah, but at least it'd be boring longer than it'll be, be having fun. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is um, the Malcolm 
um, Gladwell of Malcolm. it all. Mal- what's his name? Malcolm. Malcolm, yeah. yeah. Um, there's these, have you heard of the blue zones in the world? Blue zones? Blue zones are these zones in the world where people live on average over 100 years. Oh. And one of them is in Sardinia, Italy. And it's the same thing where they don't necessarily eat the healthiest. They're eating cheese and pasta and meat and drinking wine. I mean, even the eight-year-olds are having a glass of wine. And it's because they have this accumulative um, happiness and and community and purpose. And they have all of these sort of boxes checked. And they're living longer. I mean, they interviewed a woman who was 105. She was quicker than I was. Insane. It's it's so... um, it, it, it's so elementary. Right. We, we overcomplicate everything. We really do. Everything we see, because there's so many things you can watch. Don't eat this, eat that. And it's just, keep it simple. Yes, yeah. keep it simple. Easier said than done sometimes, for sure. But we can get, we can do that. You know, I joke about like being health, healthy is so exhausting, but it really, the simplest approach is usually the best. Like sleep is free. Sunshine is free. Apples cost a whole arm and a leg if you're going to Whole Foods. <laughs> but a walk is free. Mm-hmm. Uh, meditation is free. There are ways to sort of combat and prevent these diseases that are the, you know, basically the starting lineup. It's like the <clears throat> NBA starting lineup of death. <laughs> it's heart disease, it's dementia, it's diabetes. Yep. And, you know, did you not start thinking of this until this this all came after, you know, your experience with your father and you started going down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. of this and that? Yeah. Definitely opened the door, opened the Pandora's box of health and wellness. And you're right. It's it's so convoluted and it, it's confusing to sift through it all on Instagram and in articles. And, you know, there's a few places you can, can constantly depend, like the New Yorker article I sent to you. I depend on the New Yorker for information. I think they're a pretty great um, editorial. But you, it's you're inundated with information. It's hard to know what's right and what's accurate. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because we have access to the information, but then you're going to sift through a lot of bullshit, and that's mm-hmm. a whole other thing. Um, but let me ask you in regards to because you said it was for like 10 years, you, you know, you, you there were symptoms. And at what at the point where you realized maybe there was something happening, did did you already have that pre thought? Was there any like anticipatory grief there, where, or was it a shock when he got diagnosed and then was a year later he passed? I think it was a shock. It was definitely you know he was just shy of eighty two of his eighty second birthday, I believe, and it was a shock to us because it was you know looking back. It was decades of warning signs, but we didn't know what that was until he was already on his way to, you know, going into the final, whatever, the final sleep, whatever you want to call it. But there was a moment on September, it was a weekend of like September 28th, his birthday is September 30th, and I was doing shows in Sacramento. I was at the Sacramento Punchline, and I had invited my boyfriend at the time to come to that weekend. It was the first time I was having him with me, and... My mom called me and just said, something's wrong with your dad. And wrong enough for me to need to come home because I was a favorite daughter. Obviously, you've probably gathered that by now. I did. Excuse <laughs> you didn't even know I had sisters, but you knew I was a favorite daughter. <laughs> I can't remember. Was, was it on my face? You could just tell? Yeah. yeah. I could tell. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm the favorite son. See? I'm the only son. We recognize. Real recognizes there real. Go, favorite recognizes favorite. <laughs> Um, yeah, there was, 
this abrupt change in him, I think that's what you're asking, that alarmed us all. And the, the thing that alarmed my mom to then hit my sister up and hit me up was she went to go check on him because they were going to take him out for his birthday. And she pulled up to his house and his car trunk was popped open and his door was wide open. And again, dad being dad, not completely out of left field for this fucker to leave a trunk of a car open. Let's not also leave out the fact (laughs) that my dad had been a functioning alcoholic for the better part of 20 years. Okay. And I say functioning because he was still a jovial human being when he got drunk. Drinking did not bring out anything, no animosity, nothing vindictive. He didn't call us crying about the war. He just he just was who he was. So that's why I say functional. Not that we, you know, it was the best thing, but it was just who he was and we had to accept it. You know, um, I don't know how, how many eight-year-olds you can bring to rehab. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, that, is that a thing? <laughs> Can you bring an 80-year-old to rehab? They're probably like, bro, th- there's a there's an age limit. <laughs> that'd be fantastic. I mean, that'd be I would love to see it, to be honest. Oh, let's open an elderly rehab. <laughs> our elderly people are so we, that's a whole other conversation we can have, but like the way our elderly people are treated in this culture is so disgusting. It's that shifted a lot. I feel like <sighs> there used to be a heavy you know, for a while for what years and years, there was always the elders of respect. Not that they're I see plenty of people respecting the elders, yeah. but there seems to be a little bit of a, you know, a looking down almost. Yeah, like a disconnect. Which should be the opposite. It totally should be. Every Almost every other culture is that way. But, um, yeah, we, we just accepted that he was a functioning alcoholic. And uh, one day my mom goes over there and the tr- the trunk is popped, the, stair- the doorway is open to his stairwell. And she goes up and he is completely unkept. And my father was a man who shaved every day, even if he didn't have any place to go. The only place he went was the bar, Change of Pace, on Grant Boulevard in the north side of Syracuse, New York. Shout out to Change of, Change of Pace. They have great wings. It's in, a, it's in an old house, but that's where all the bars are in Syracuse. That's awesome. And there, there, I will say a very important detail. There is inside furniture on the front porch. Oh, wow. I like that. So I guess. It's welcoming. It's like, come inside. Like, we're going to bring the inside to you outside so you feel like coming in. Wasn't that the night of the Roxbury's? Sure thing. Yeah. It's hot stuff. Way ahead of the time. Yeah. Okay. So the, the bars in a house. <laughs> 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 Signs you're from upstate. There's bars and houses. <laughs> I mean, what else do you do there? I don't know. I've been upstate a few times. What else do you do? You drink and you think. Yeah. And then you drink because you thought. And then you leave the trunk open when you yeah, get home. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he... Uh, <laughs> He, he was just completely unkept. His beard had grown in. His hair was disheveled. And he had forgotten that they were going to go out that day. And um, that was the kicker for us. Now, what happened a month earlier was what got him to that point. About a month earlier, towards the end of the summer, he was complaining of vertigo. And he was of sound mind, you know, of sound mind as we knew Dad to have... And he was complaining about dizziness. And we witnessed it a couple times where he'd go to stand up and he kind of would, you know, try to get his bearings. And he looked like a little wobbly on his feet. And so we brought him to a neurologist. And the neurologist did a cognitive test on him and suggested he stop drinking. And I'm like, wow, what a genius idea. I have have so many conversations I want to have about 
the doctors and our, just our healthcare industry as a whole, I feel like there's a, um, this is a, just a tangent for a moment. I feel like there's a real lack of a desire to continue education as a doctor. Continue education to other healthcare professionals? Whatever, or? Your, whatever your field is. Because you go to school, you learn, you, you cram and you learn and you, you are in school for whatever, seven, eight, ten years, whatever the, the time frame is. You become a doctor, you put on the jacket. Are you furthering your education? Are you reading the articles that are coming out? Are you meeting with your colleagues and, and former classmates about clinical trials and, and new drugs that are on the market? And just these different, are you looking into homeopathic options and just broadening your mind as far as what you can bring to your patients. I feel like... That's so true. That's a really good point. There's just... And I'm not saying every single doctor. There are great doctors. And and I'm not completely attacking the medical industry, but we can agree that it's lacking. Yeah, I think I had a a Dr. Shoshana on and we kind of spoke about the healthcare and many different variations. And I feel like that kind of came up. And even um, that book right there, Bruce Lipton, I had him on my podcast. Uh, he was scolded for his thought on, regardless of what people think, epigenetics and his belief in energy and kind of what we were discussing with stress. He, he had this premise and thought like since like the 70s or 80s and the whole scientific community was just kind of shunned him. And now it's kind of, it's been coming to light a lot more that, you know, more people believe what he was saying. But my point was, I feel like especially you know, certain experts, whether even archaeology or whatever it is, right. they kind of like, and this is coming from someone who's not educated on the, on what we're talking about, but nevertheless, it's like, I feel like when they are held to a certain standard for so long, it's like, they're not going to shift. Right. And so that, that, that is a, I'm a real estate agent. I have to renew my license every X amount of years. I mean, kind of don't have to learn too, there are new laws here and there, but what's more ever shifting in the you know the medical community and new right. diseases and new medicines and stuff like that. I do wonder how many are keeping up the pace. Yeah, keeping up the pace, and I'm sure they have to. You know, their medical license has to be upheld as as well. But it just feels like there's a lack of of gusto when you go into an office because they have a limited amount of time. Because our healthcare industry is rooted in pharmaceuticals, and because of that, it's a conveyor belt of 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 patients. It's not about quality patient care is about quick patient care. They're limited too. I think they're they're low on st- like staff too yeah. across the board too. So it's like it's everyone gets hurt there. We're we're going to have a surplus of girls who are influencers and we're going to have to do a draft for doctors. Because no one wants to like dig in and do work that actually provides real utility to society. You know, we're just going to have these girls that are posing in front of a a, a mural painted with angel wings. That's who we're going to have to go to for medical care because all the doctors are going to die off. Yeah, but if it's on TikTok, it's probably legit. (laughs) The TikTok doc. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. We need to grab that handle now before this episode drops. Oh, we have to. That might exist. That's got to be a thing. We're going to fact check that after this. If not, you and I are going to get it, and we're going (laughs) to— I do oddly have a doctor's robe because I was supposed to do a sketch a while ago and I just in there, so it's in plastic wrap. So just in case we do this, yes. TikTok talk. That's so funny. I do Dr. Palooza where I'm like, I'm not a real doctor, <laughs> but so, people send me in questions. Like, it makes no sense what I'm about to say, but Dr. Palooza sounds legit. It like, does. I feel like I'm in Central Jersey. Like I'm, I got to go see Dr. Palooza. I'm a podiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and I also do ear, nose, and throat because that's the other thing doctors are going to have to do. Because there's going to be a lack of them, we're going to have mm. to combine their specialties. Yeah, um, <laughs> or onto something. 
But um, yeah, he complained about vertigo. We brought him into the neurologist. She suggests he quits drinking. Whoa, great. Wow, this is groundbreaking. Um, so sarcastic and bitter, but you know, uh, it, goes, it goes along with the territory. So she said to him, she goes, very important because of the nature of your drinking and, and how long, how many hours you've put in. You have to gradually ease yourself, wean yourself off of the alcohol because that can have detrimental effects. Just like going cold turkey is dangerous. For going some- cold turkey is very dangerous for someone, especially who, you know, unbeknownst to us at the time, had a predisposition towards a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or dementia. I've read, and it may be inaccurate, but at the time I read a couple different articles that said that if there's an addiction or something, sometimes it can ward off the symptoms of the disease because the other disease is more prevalent, like alcoholism. So it's harder to really diagnose the dementia because the alcoholism is kind of driving the car, per se. Wow. Dr- okay. Driving the car. Ironic. Crashing into people. <laughs> <laughs> We're all, it's all tied together. <laughs> Which my dad did get at 72, uh, DWI. I mean, what? Just he just was a rock star. I literally was going to say, he's kind of a band too. It's incredible. I want to hear his first death EP. Metal. Yeah. Death- <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. The, li- the one line is you're dropping right now. It's going to be in a new special. I don't know if we should release this episode. We should wait. <laughs> yeah. This should be Patreon exclusive. You guys don't deserve this for free. <laughs> Jesus. Um. So he stopped cold turkey. <laughs> he's a stubborn Italian. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you are familiar with stubborn Italians. Yeah, you didn't I am listen. One. I'm one as well. He stopped cold turkey, and that from a month from that date to the day my mother went to his house where he was disheveled with the car trunk open and the door wide open was the time frame. Uh, pretty much a month in, in a couple weeks of him being off alcohol, and the disease had space to show up in full form. So that's where we were shocked into the reality of dementia and vascular dementia. Um, Him quitting alcohol is essentially what got him to be fully actualized as a dementia patient. That's so ironic. It's so wild. Only if you had stayed a drunk, maybe he'd still be here. Uh, (laughs) Keep drinking kids. (laughs) (laughs) If you're forgetting things, just keep drinking. I mean, is there was there any other way to go about that, or was wait, back to what you said about he just did it too fast, or would, it, would it slow, have di- weaning off done anything, or is just it was inevitable? I think it was inevitable. I think weaning off would have given us a little bit more time to prepare, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome because so the disease had already showed up years prior. So then, what's your what's in your head at this point? <sighs> you know, we were so what's it called like sidelined is that what it's called or like t-boned by it we were just complete blindsided we were blindsided by it my sisters you know they called me to come home to like diagnose (laughs) not to diagnose but you know just to see for myself because you're you're a pediatrician you said i'm I'm and a podiatrist i just got the pediatrician degree as well just in this conversation it came up on my phone so (laughs) i'm accepting new patients (laughs) and new people tiny babies we'll tell you in the link (laughs) um they asked me to go see him and see what I thought. And that's kind of how I think it shows up for a lot of people because now we're talking about it more 
and it's becoming more of a conversation. There's, you know, Seth Rogen has a hilarity for charity with his wife, Laura Rogen, um, Lauren, and that's a charity where they raise funds for caregivers, which is the other thing about these sort of diseases where people become incapacitated, mentally incapacitated. It's very expensive for the family because you don't really know what's going on. And then you kind of start to need home care and a nurse 20, you know, 12 hours out of the day and then 24 hours out of the day. And the next thing you know, you're spending 20, 30 grand in a month for an adult babysitter. And so Hilarity for Charity is an amazing foundation organization that provides funds for families to sort of help recoup some of that, that those finances. Um, I'm doing a, I don't know when this comes out, but I'm on a, a panel with them February 17th with a couple other people just bringing awareness about the importance of humor and, and dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm excited. I'm totally honored to be a part of it. But um I guess when I went there to see him, I I brought my my boyfriend at the time, and I have a joke about this. I was also simultaneously trying to deal with what was going on with him, and I deal with most things like a lot of comedians do on stage and writing, and because the disease was so aggressive and fast, I didn't have enough time to develop the the material as he was getting sicker and sicker, but my my boyfriend at the time and I went over and I was like, well, I want you to meet my dad, so let's just see what's going on. And, and we go to the house and we knock on the door and my dad answers the door with his dong out. Just a, just a V-neck t-shirt, just like a 100% cotton veins, tagless V-neck t-shirt because that's what Joe bought, 10 to the pack. <laughs> I feel like the V-neck was on purpose. It's just oh, yeah, he's got to let you know there's something going yeah, yeah. on. Okay. There's right. some energy under that. Damn, no, you know? He yeah. gives you a little peek of the clavicle. <laughs> just just kind of like warming you up? Like. Yeah, just giving you a focal point, okay? <laughs> you don't look, you look here. You don't look at my face. You look at this, whatever this is, this hole in your neck, this neck hole. This they, neck hole? Yeah, you know this like little, yeah, 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 where they right poke there. a straw in if you're choking? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever that is, he <laughs> wants you to look at that. It's like a real life Zoom call. Like he's just, <laughs> you know? He uses a Zoom outfit. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm going to use that. That's fine. Take it. That is so funny. Like, this guy's ready to take a Zoom conference call. <laughs> the doorbell rings. <laughs> We're interrupting him. <laughs> Holy shit, that's funny. Yeah, and his, his, his dog's out, and my boyfriend at the time was like, what is going on? I'm like, I, 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 I think oh, man. This, is, this is a lot. I think this is like, I called it a Sicilian standoff. I was like, I think this is a Sicilian standoff and he needs to know if his daughter's going to be safe. So you have to fight to the death. I think you also need to take your pants off. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not a male, but this is obviously a literal cockfight. <laughs> so I'm going to go out in the front lawn and cry in the grass. And then you deal with whatever the fuck this is. Because this wasn't in the uh, adulting book. <laughs> No one told me that this was a possibility. I mean, I know you're, you're laughing at it now, but at the time. <laughs> uh, it was, I remember being so confused. And I have a relatively quick brain. I process quickly. I verbalize somewhat, a little bit slower because I, I really think about things. So at the time, my brain was just going through the Rolodex looking for a reason and looking for a cause and, and looking for a possible explanation. 
And I thought, well, maybe it's hot in the house. <laughs> I mean, okay, you're reaching a little bit. It's um, September, you know, those the, the late summer month, early fall can be a little yeah. stagnant in the house. Mm-hmm. Thought maybe he just was looking to get a breeze. Fair. Um, but then we, I walk in, and the state of the house is what really made me go, oh, my God, I, this isn't my dad. Like, his house was in such a disarray. And he's somebody who's so clean and so immaculate. Like I said, he shaved every day. You know, he was raised by an Italian man who was also very respectful. My grandfather, Mike, used to wear a three-piece suit every day. We always joked as a family that Grandpa Mike would be out trimming the hedges in a three-piece suit. <laughs> so Italian. So Italian. Yeah. Like a, a tailored gray three-piece suit with brown shoes. This guy's out there weed-whacking. And so my father was raised to be that way. And he was, you know, not a military man. He was in the war. He wasn't boots to the ground, but he was, you know, an uh, occupation in Germany. But he still had, you know, a routine for himself and kept his house very clean. And it was a fucking mess. It looked like someone had left an animal alone for weeks. And it just was like... I felt so helpless. I felt so in over my head. And I felt like I grew up like that in that moment because I had to, the roles switched. The parent-child role switched completely. It was like Freaky Friday. That's exactly what it felt like. And I'm like, oh my God, I am an 80-year-old Italian man. I have to step in and be an adult. And I had to give him a shower that day because he was so not to be gross, he was compacted down there and was, you know, he he wasn't eating right. It's the other thing. He wasn't eating right, so he was dehydrated. Um, he wasn't brushing his teeth or brushing his hair, so everything just needed to move and everything needed to get cleaned, and I kind of went into a fucking panic. I think it was, there was some football game on. I kind of remember that, and my boyfriend at the time could see that I needed to do stuff in the house because he had also defecated around the house and had peed in, in flower pots, which is you can do when you come home drunk from the bar yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Once or twice. Once or twice. But if you're using it as your urinal. Yeah, it's not a litter box. It's not <laughs> the house was a litter box. And so he kind of could sense I needed to tend. And so he tried to occupy him a little bit. And I went into this frenzy. I just I went into work mode. I started to clean up as good as I could. And I also was panicking. I was crying. I was like, I felt like I was losing my dad and gaining a stranger and had to take on this role that I didn't fucking understand. And it all felt so abrupt and 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 um, so emotionally jarring. And then I went into, you know, like mother mode. And and I could smell him, and I was like, oh, we gotta, I gotta wash him. Like, I can't, we we wanted to bring him out, and we had plans to go out. I think the whole family, we were going to take him somewhere, and I, I had to get in the shower with him. And and when you're an adult, and that's your parent, it's, like, consensual at best. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, if you tell your friends you took a shower with your dad, they're like, we're coming over, we're doing an intervention. <laughs> We've got to call. We've called professionals. That's so hard. That's so. I, that's. I mean, if, if that's not love, I don't know what is. You know. Yeah, and that's the other thing. It's such a good point. Like this whole process with him really 
taught me about a different type of love and what unconditional love really is. And that was like the silver lining uh, for me in all of it. Not that I'm summarizing it and, and, and wrapping it all up. I'm just saying like, looking back at the entire scenario and experience, even though it was so brutal and so heartbreaking, it really taught me and showed me what it felt like to unconditionally love someone, to love something without any expectations in return, without wanting in return. To love without wanting, that's... The ultimate. It's the ultimate. And and I didn't know that that came in the form of pulling poop out of my dad's butt. Hey, I now we know. <laughs> I went in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, seriously, I, that's, it's, that's, it's, it's sad as that is, that's beautiful. You know what I mean? That's very, it's, it's truly beautiful. Obviously, it's very descriptive and this and that, but it's it's beautiful that you did that. You know what I mean? That's that's something. It's admirable too. I don't I don't know how many people. I hope a lot of people would do that, but you stepped up. It's a lot of people end up having to do it, and and because the alternative is alternative is you go broke, paying for someone else to do it, and no one tells you about these things when this situation comes up, like something that is the number six cause of death in this country. You'd think there'd be literature and more conversation and more resources, which there are, but there, it's it's not as general knowledge as it should be. It's not as common sense as it should be. I feel like if there's, if we're going to list things, the top six causes of death in this country, there needs to be apparent resources for people to, to each one of those diseases. Yeah. Because you look at people who are in a much more stressful and strained socioeconomic state, they're going to go broke. They're going to absolutely go broke. And then you you layer in the emotions of wanting to care for somebody and can't because you can't afford it. You know, I, I want to get into your grief process before, mm-hmm. I, before I ask you that. What is, is there, um, are there any statistics on when you get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, a timeline or is, there, is it kind of sporadic of? Yeah, there is, there I think the average person lives with Alzheimer's somewhere between eight and, and it can be up to 15 years. I mean, you live with it for for decades. But the part where it gets really aggressive and where you're starting to get into the stages of it, you know, stage one being very um, early on with like forgetting how to get to places. And, Is it like year one kind of thing? Yeah, you know, it's kind of different for everybody. It's so individualized. That's the great thing about dementia. It's like so individualized. It's so Los Angeles. Yeah, it's like your cell phone cover. You can make it specific to you. <laughs> you can bedazzle it. <laughs> you can bedazzle your dementia. <laughs> I love friends. I want a friend's cake. <laughs> well, great, because you're going to fucking forget all of them uh, too soon. Um, uh, there are man. stages. They're all very different. They're, it's, it's not, it's almost linear. You know, like we're talking about grief, like the process of grief is not linear. You experience all the stages, and I don't even really adhere to that as a um, consistent model. I think it's just a a suggestion of what happens to people. I think grief is much more profound than the Kubler-Ross model that we have. But it's, you know, it's not linear. The stages of Alzheimer's tends to be a little bit more linear in dementia, depending on what type they're diagnosed with. Um, but when you get down to the nitty gritty, whew, it's, it's, it, for us, because ours was more aggressive, it just was so fast. It felt like 
getting into the ring, I would imagine getting to into the ring with a professional heavyweight boxer and never having boxed before and having to learn moves as you're getting punched, having to like fight back and you just keep getting these like right hooks and uppercuts and you're like, oh, I got to do uppercuts. Okay. And by the time you do an uppercut, there's another like move where they kick you in the abdomen. So that's what it kind of felt like in, in those stages. But they're, you know, on average, people can live anywhere from 8 to, to 15 years or longer or less, depending. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because the caregivers in the situation you and your family are in are, you know, I hate to say the word burden, but it's a, it's, it's a burden. It's you know exactly what it is. And then when you transition to the point where you lost your dad, it's like when, when someone dies, it's the, it's the living that are more or less burdened with handling what happened. So what is that transition like from having all those years of taking care of him or however long it was, and then you lost him? Like, what is, what is that process? Do you remember anything from the first, like the first year or the first moment that it happened where your head was in regards to all this? I think the interesting thing about dementia, Alzheimer's and all of that under that umbrella is you have to grieve them while they're alive. You lose pieces of them every day that never return. You get moments of lucidity with them that become fewer and fewer. And by the end, the person sitting in front of you is not the person you know. So you essentially start the grieving process with a living human being. And that is the weirdest, most, um, it feels like, it feels like a violation and it feels like you are completely, um, like I, I don't know what the word is. It's it's almost like it, it feels like you are, um, like you're doing something wrong. There's so much guilt with it because you're looking at this person who's looking back at you, and you feel so bad that you have to let go of who they were the day before because that person's not going to come back. And then it does this really brutal tug and pull of when these moments of lucidity happen, where they come back and they're like you know, there's this one moment that was so fucking heartbreaking where I picked him up from his his memory care facility, which is a whole other fucking conversation, back to us not taking care of our elderly in this country, which I think there's a path for me, like you were talking about wanting to expand this podcast. I feel like there's a life path for me in that area. I don't know what yet, but it, it, I want to help somehow um, memory care facilities the cost and the quality of care do not add up. And that's another conversation. But I picked him up and there's a really powerful tool in music with people who have dementia or Alzheimer's. Music I learned in my research activates all parts of your brain. It's one of the only things that does that, especially if the person was a musician or played music. It really brings them back. And Another thing is that we retain music from the age of like 15 to 25. Most human beings hang on to that music and we remember the lyrics and we can be brought back to the moment and what we were doing in that time. So when you deal with this, if you should, find out what that music is, find out what that era was. And for my dad, it was like Frank Sinatra and like the Rat Pack and, and that whole style. Like he was, I think he was like, I think the math adds up because he would connect with that. And so... I picked him up from the memory care facility. We had like less than a mile drive to go down to meet our family for lunch. And we had a, accepted our fate at this point. And we had put him in a place because we did, we were in over our head and we didn't have the ability to care for him. And so I put on Frank Sinatra. And I think it was 
Fly Me to the Moon, and we're driving down the road, and we're singing, and he knows the lyrics. Doesn't know where he is, but he knows the lyrics. Barely knows who I am, but he knows the lyrics, and I'm just accepting it and singing along with him, being in the moment with him. And we pull up and we park, and he's sitting in the passenger seat, and he starts to get upset. And I'm like, Dad, what's going on? And he goes, I just, I miss you so much. He was like, I miss you so much. And I was like, oh, I, I miss you so much too. And he started to come back to me. And my brother-in-law, unbeknownst to him, walked up to the car and rattled on the passenger window. And he was gone. And he started to say something to me. He started to like communicate something to me. Like he was there. It was him. It was my dad. And my brother-in-law just wanting to bring everything Light, not knowing what my father and I were talking about, probably assuming my dad was mumbling nonsensicals and non sequiturs like most of the time at that point, had just rattled him out of a moment of lucidity, and I could have fucking killed him. Because you can't control when those come. So that was like such a... That's why I call it like a snake in the grass. It was like just, you know, poking its head out and, and taunting you and then going back away and... It felt so, so painful. And that that's, you know, we're talking about grief. I I experienced it in a different way in that moment. Like, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to let go of this guy while he's still here. Did you? Yeah, I did. Um the uh, other thing that my brother-in-law Steve did that was a gift towards the end was he said, um, he said we were we were talking with um the end of life counselors which i mean we've got to learn some finesse we've got to learn some fucking communication skills we got to fucking care if you're dealing with a family in a room in the shitty lighting in a hospital that smells like piss and vinegar and and terrible peanut butter and jelly sandwiches why are we feeding are, are people peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and, and meat that my cousin once said that I'll never forget when her father was on his deathbed dying. They brought in a piece of meat. She said, that is not meat. That's a monkey paw. That's what we're fucking serving our, our sick people. <laughs> we're in the room dealing with the end-of-life counselors, and my brother-in-law gave us a gift, and he said... Um, after dealing with that whole moment, actually, we were back home, and he said, you know, after we were absorbing, mentally absorbing the day and talking with the end-of-life counselors and what the process was, he said, you know, you might want to tell your dad it's okay to go. Because people hang on. Our will is so strong. And we've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. Miraculous things have happened to people who are given death sentences where they fight through and they defy the odds, they defy the doctors, they defy the statistics, and they pull through. And that's where people say it's God, that's where people say it's whatever it is, doesn't fucking matter. It's a real experience. And I think in the, uh, on the other side of the coin, people hang on for their family, where they know they need to go, but they hang on because there's unsaid things that need to be said and there's people that they need to see and, and whatever it is. So when we were home, my brother-in-law was like, you guys might want to verbalize that to him. Let him know that he can go because we know how this is going to end. And a day later or so, we went to 
the hospital where it was, I think they call it, is it hospice? No, he wasn't at hospice. It was, he had been brought in because he'd gotten more progressed. The, the memory care facility was in over their heads. They couldn't take care of him because he had started throwing fecal matter at his roommate. And I was like, well, what did the roommate say? Let's, can we? It's two sides to a coin. Two sides to a coin. Unfortunately, only one side to poo. And that's unfortunate. And we are sorry. But um, what did the guy say? And it turns out that the dude took my dad's hat. Oh, that's a big deal for me. Shat for hat is all I got to say. <laughs> that's the name of your new charity? <laughs> <laughs> that was another phone call I got. You got to come home, dad, through poop. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, man. I'm like, I have an Amazon delivery that day. I can't. I think FedEx is showing up. I have a really important new toothbrush that's coming in. Uh, um, damn. But, you know, he, um, we were in the hospital where he was brought after the memory care facility, said they couldn't take care of him, and where we met with the end-of-life counselors, and, and all my sisters were there. And I said to him that he, he could go. Now, I should say before I say that to him, it was around his birthday, his birthday was, I think his birthday was, yeah, was it? I think it might have been his birthday, September 30th, because it was like around the time frame from his birthday to, you know, when he died. It was around that time. My sister Chris had gotten him a fart card. We always would get fart cards. Are they make noise? Yeah, that you open them up and they're like, oh, I love those. Uh, they're the greatest. Fantastic. And it was like, I remember it was, I think we might still have it. It was a picture of like a cabin at night. And you open it up, and it's like crickets and bullfrogs, and then you hear. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> it's right up my alley. It really is. It's like, it's like you're a family member. It's bizarre. <laughs> and at that point, my father had lost the ability to like verbally communicate with us or verbalize. He had almost practically lost the ability to even communicate with his eyes, his touch, Um he was really slipping at that point. But you open that fart card and boy, would it send him into giggles. It's, mu- it's music. It, right. It is. It's Sound. a butt trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> oh That's what he played. That was the only instrument he played was the butt trumpet. Hey, we all got our gifts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> so we were grateful for fart cards. They brought my dad back. I always say Frank and farts brought my dad back. Frank Sinatra and fart cards. It's kind of similar to my dad, not going to lie. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, th- that was just where his state of mind was. He wasn't connecting with us. So I say that because it's important to have that correlation because when my sister, Chris, Karen, Emily, and I were sitting around him, my mother was also there. I said to him that we loved him, that he was an amaze is and was an amazing dad, that we were okay, we were loved, that he could go. And he started to cry. And that's where I was just like, wait, maybe he shouldn't go. He's there. Like, so that's where there's such an emotional tug and pull. Are you clinging on the fact that you might get the lucidity? Yeah. And there's moments. And like, maybe we're fucking up. Mm. Maybe there is hope. Maybe he will come back. And um, he just, I think he, he needed to hear it. He needed to hear that because he was gone weeks later. And there's so many magical things that happened. I made friends that 
I never saw coming. I lost friends that I never, ever thought I would. And people showed up in ways. That's a thing about grief. It changes people. It changes your every fiber of your being. It changes how you step out in the world. And I think it should. It's a very profound experience. I think it's one of the most profound experiences in life because from the moment we're born, we're experiencing. We are living. We're growing. We are evolving. But death is the one experience we can't personally experience ourselves. When we die, we don't experience that. Our loved ones do. So death is an experience that other people have in relation to whoever died. Do you understand what I'm saying? For sure. And that's why I think it's the most profound experience that we don't have. It's it's the biggest mystery of life besides where we come from, depending on what your beliefs are. And I think that I chose to to look at the positive. Maybe that's a pathology, but it's just how I've been my whole life, how I've survived. Maybe it's a survival mechanism. But this comedian who I knew of but never met, John Heffron, had sent me a message on Instagram because I was very public about my father's experience. That was the only other way I could not feel alone because I was in L.A. My family was in Syracuse, and there's so many things I would have done differently. I kind of wish I just stayed home, but I didn't know what we were dealing with, and I was hopeful and going back and forth across the country for a year booking gigs near them so I could work and make some money and go back home and doing this triangle of <laughs> triangle of sadness like that movie, just traveling in this circle of hope and despair. Um, there's still miraculous things that happened in people who showed up in ways that I will ever forever be indebted to, and John Heffron was one of them. And, you know, he sent me a message because his mother had, I think she had Alzheimer's or, or maybe... Um, some sort of neurodegenerative Parkinson's or something like that, where the, it is imminent that they will die. It is, you know, a death sentence and there's no cure. He said, you know, I see you are spending time with him and and um, I want you to know that when you're with him, even though he can't communicate with you, he can hear. He can still hear you because hearing is one of the last senses they believe to go towards the end. When you're going, that they can still hear, people can still hear, and that's why it's important to talk to your loved ones when you're with them. And if you think they're not responding to you, there's there's a part of them that is still absorbing and feeling and hearing. So he said that, and it, it resonated with me. And I wrote on my mirror, call your dad in lipstick after that message. And my dad at this point had been moved from that hospital with the end-of-life counselors to hospice to where people go to die. And boy, that's a one of the saddest places. That should why why is everything got to be gray? Yeah. Why do we got to paint the death halls gray? Why are we painting the place where people go for their forever nap the saddest fucking colors? Why aren't there why isn't there a fucking marching band or or a harp player or you know flowers painted on the fucking wall? What it how hard is it to paint a flower? Even just colors. Colors. Um, it's all so backwards, the way we deal with death and the way we deal with our elderly people. And it's, it's all so dismissive and, um, feels like just, we're throwing it, you know, just, just being completely, um, careless. But that message, I'd read it and I'd want to call the the desk, the girl at the desk who was a nurse. And she said, anytime you guys want to call, just call me and I'll, you know, go into the room with him or whatever. And I was always so scared because he wouldn't respond. 
I knew he wouldn't respond. I, I, I never, actually, I don't think I ever called until one, one night, but he couldn't respond. He wasn't talking at that point. And um, I had gone in to visit him when he was in there, and we put pictures up of us around him and, and you know, tried to show face and show that we weren't going to accept bare minimum treatment tried to make friends with the nurses and know names and remember names and all of that. We we still were holding on to the fact that this guy was going to be out playing nine holes the next day. <laughs> God damn. Hope is exhausting. Uh, hope is exhausting. <laughs> but what do you do? I mean, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? There was something odd that happened that has stuck with me. Uh, my father, to not be too um, descriptive or in no way trying to exploit what happened to him or how death takes over. You know, we know about the death rattle, that noise that is just <sighs> gets into your bones. It's, it's it's scary. It's so scary. I haven't heard it in person, but I had a couple hospice nurses on here discuss it and I listened to it. It's, it's hard. It's very hard. It feels unhuman. Inhum- it just feels unhuman. Um, yet it's so human. Yet it's so human. Um, it's like, oh, now you're, what are you, a singer? Like, all of a sudden, you're just, what are you, recording a track? Is this like a new rap mumble? What is this? <laughs> I think he's trying to say the Sinatra lyrics that, uh, what are you, riding high, in May, riding high in April, shot down in May? Is that what he's trying to say? <laughs> is this a new Sinatra rap track? This is trash. <laughs> So along with the death rattle, sometimes there is an aroma. And for a couple days being there, I'm like, what is, what, there's something in this room. I was so oblivious to death. I'd I'd never been around it. It was the first time I had a front row seat to the stages of death and someone dying. The smell was indescribable and something I couldn't locate. And then like on the third day, I was like, it's my dad. And he smelled like aging wine. Smelled like aging red wine. And it kind of fucked me up because that's my favorite drink. Is um, it still? It is. But there are times when I will get that aroma and I'm brought right back because smell is one of the strongest things linked to memory besides music. And then this other really amazing thing happened. This company, Charlotte's Web, the Stanley Brothers CBD company. Are you familiar with it? I oh, know. I was thinking you're going the other way. With Charlotte's <laughs> Web. Yeah, I was like, okay, so let's see where this goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the these brothers were growers, marijuana growers, that had a weak strain, which was a CBD strain, I believe. I'm probably chopping up the story a little bit. But um, they found that it was effective and eff- efficacious for people who had ep- epileptic seizures and seizures. And it's named after this girl who they helped, this young girl who I think had grand mal seizures, like one to 200 a day. This young girl, little girl, this woman's daughter. I think she might have been, I don't know, maybe double digits, 10, if that They found that the CBD strain, which is non-psychoactive, we know CBD and THC and all the different uh, types in between, when applied and and given to her, I think pretty much really eradicated a a majority of those seizures. So they created Charlotte's Web, and it's it's a great brand. Incredible. Incredible company. Um, And they reached out to me, and they sent me product. And they said, you know, this is for you and your family to enjoy and hopefully brings you some peace. And that's why I say like people reach out and you never know who's going to be, who's going to show up and how they're going to show up. And so I snuck the CBD into the hospital because it's not, it wasn't legal at the time. Um, 
And my father also, the stages of death, they start to get tight. Everything starts to get very rigid and they're stiff. And he just had a constant grimace on his face. It's like, fuck, just fucking go, bro. What are you hanging on for? You're trying to be like the Muhammad Ali of death? How many rounds are we going? Golly, you're just... I'm assuming this is before you had a thought of saying anything to him? This was after we had said, you can go. And I I guess I should have told him a little quicker. Because this guy's taking his damn time. He's strolling out the door. You know that friend who's just there hanging out? Like, well, I'll see you later. And then they start another conversation. Like, we gotta gotta cut this short. Because I got... There's so many things I need to do today. I have to cry. Yeah. And then after that needs food and then you need to cry more. All of a sudden we're the insensitive ones saying, go already. Yeah. Yeah. So this was after, this was my my dad's idea of going. Um, but he had gotten really tense and rigid and he had this permanent grimace on his face. And I snuck the violin, the vial of CBD. And with the grace of my sister and my mother, I said, can I give him some? You know, at that point we could have given him heroin and it would have been fine, which I think should be available end of life. Yeah, they should have a whole smorgasbord of options there. That's what, that's what smorgasbord? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Strap it up. Stick it between my toe. Seriously, I'm in. I'll I'm going up. for the full. I want the, the Ozzy. Want, what did Ozzy Osbourne have for breakfast? Mm, bats. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> bats loaded up with heroin. Yeah. yeah. Heroin bats. That's I'll, how I want to go out. I'm in. I'll sign off on that now. <laughs> For real. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, is CBD okay? So I give him some drops of CBD, and my sister and I are just standing over him. And I literally physically saw the effects of CBD happen in real time. I saw him decompress. My sister and I both were looking at him. It was almost like like Macy's Day Parade balloon deflating. Wow. And re- like he just, we could literally see him relax. His grimace went away. His his hands relaxed. His breathing was regulated. And I, I'm pretty sure I started to cry. And my sister and I were just like, oh, oh my God. That's incredible. He's back. That's <laughs> we're like, oh, he's back. <laughs> Guys, we were on the hall. We're going to get out. <laughs> we're going, we're going to go to Green Lakes and do a tight night. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna wrap this wrapping it up. Joey P's back. Joey P. <laughs> so I love it. There's all these wild it's things. It's a roller coaster ride yeah. of just ebbs and flows of what's coming next, how do you feel, what to do. Right. And then back to the John Heffron of it all, I had flown back home after that to LA and saw Call Your Dad and Lipstick on my mirror for a couple days. I just thought about it and couldn't because I just thought about his smell and how rigid he was in and, and the room and I felt so scared and I knew he, wouldn't, he wasn't going to be able to talk to me and there was this one Sunday where I had a panic attack on the phone with my sister with my sister we were FaceTiming and I was walking from my apartment to Ralph's and my panic attack started on the walk and I told her I said dad's going to die it's, you got to go and see him He's going to die like in a, I can feel it. I can feel him leaving earth. Like it's happening. And I was in a panic attack for probably half an hour. And I I had only started experiencing panic attacks around this time with, with my father. Um, when I finally came to, I went to bed that night and was exhausted. And I just made sure I told my sister, I'm like, you need to go see him and say goodbye. And I said, I don't know why I know this. I just know it. I can feel it. It's happening. And so I think the next Monday, 
I went to sleep that Sunday and I, I woke up. I went to bed really late. And right before I went to bed, I called the hospital. It was the first time I ever called. Because that fucking note kept hitting me in the face every time I went to the to the bathroom. And I called and the night nurse, or I think her name was Carol. What was her name? I think her name was Carol or Karen. And um, I said, Karen, this is Joe's daughter. Can you just go whisper in his ear that I love him and I'm thinking about him and I love him so much and I miss him. And she said, yeah, I can go. I'll go do that right now on my rounds. And I hang up with her and I fall asleep. And my sister had called me, I think within an hour later, and he had died. He died after that. And I, most people don't get that kind of closure. Most people don't have that know-with-all to even consider it because the process of grief is so strong and overwhelming and all-consuming that you don't think of those things until fucking afterwards and then people are killing themselves while they're alive with the what-ifs and the regrets and the guilt and what they could have done, what they shoulda, coulda, woulda. The shoulda, coulda, wouldas in grief are so brutal. And all the gifts and the people who showed up for me provided me with so many opportunities to say what most people don't think or have the capacity to say. And and I'm I'm like eternally grateful for strangers. I don't I, I never met John Heffron. Really? Never met him. He changed my life. He he gave me the greatest gift and he allowed me like some grace in the grieving process and, and some strength and bravery. I think that's the importance of this conversation. People are gonna have to meet you to pull something from this, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of everything you just said. And um you know, I, I know you got a heart out, so I want to be respectful. Maybe there'll be a part two, but I do want to ask you, A, there might be a multi-part question. How are you today? Because it's been, what, five years? Yeah, it's been five years. And what what was, I'm sure there's a million things, but and you mentioned, you know, there's no, the, the stages of grief, whatever, are not linear. Was there any emotion that was most prominent in the grief process for you? Or did you feel like your process of everything you just explained kind of diffused it in a way where you were able to handle it a little better because it was anticipatory and you had this closure? I think the most consuming emotion associated with grief that I didn't even know I was drowning in was depression. Had no idea. Had no idea that I was depressed until after my mother died. And that's a whole other conversation. We can definitely do a part two. Hey, part two. Mom's dead too. Stay tuned, kids. Death is fun. God, I'm glad we only have two parents. Holy uh, shit. Well, yeah. Imagine we're a Mormon. Yeah. What, what did they do when the village r- literally raised the kid? That must have been brutal for the kid. How many of these fuckers are going to die? One guy's taking two years to die. This one dies from a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> Stress was different then, guys. Stress, yeah. Stress was different. Um, I didn't realize how depressed I was. So was the depression, as as you said, like a snake in the grass for you? Yes, the depression was a snake in the grass, and the depression was to the bone, to my core. And it was apparent to my friends around me. It was evident to them. I asked afterwards, once I had the self-actualization, that that's what I was experiencing. And Ironically enough, and I don't know if this is ironic, but Tony Robbins is the individual who helped me realize that. 
come to terms with acknowledging and identifying depression. Um, but one of my friends, I asked her, I said, was I, have I been different? Have, how have I been in this? And, and she said, you haven't been you. You've been, I think you've been depressed. And I had already come to that conclusion, but I wanted to see how other people saw me so I could further help myself grieve. Because you also, in this process, we don't talk a lot about it. You have to grieve parts of yourself that are dying because you change so much. Losing someone you love changes you on a cellular level. Parts of you die. The part, parts of you that, um, that, that represent them has to die in order for you to move on. And that's a whole other conversation about how to properly grieve yourself. And I, I had to learn that. I had to look back and, and acknowledge that I was depressed and that it affected my friendships. And not that that matters because the real ones understand, but that's where you end up losing people because they don't understand that. And that's okay. I have text messages and emails I still haven't responded to. That's their fucking... Guys, death is having such a moment right now. This is such a moment. I love the journey for death. You know, I love I love how you asked your friend. I think that's really important. It's it, it reminded me of, you know, I see my nephews as where's this original <laughs> sounds off the bat. Like when you're raising a child, you don't notice how tall they're getting because you're always with them. And then when you and I see my nephew, oh my God, you got like a foot taller. And the parents are like, oh yeah, I guess you did because you're constantly around it. Until you see that other perspective, you ask someone else who is seeing you in that light. I think that's a I think that's great. And any uh, the grief or anything else, if you ha- hopefully for if you're blessed enough to have someone that close to be honest with you. Yeah. And you had the balls to sorry for lack of a better term there, to ask your friend and be willing to see to be willing to hear that perspective from someone that you might not even want to hear. But it seemed like that was an important contribution to you seeing your depression and then yeah. working that out. Yes, and identifying it. And the other thing that helped me identify my depression was reading the comments underneath my Bobby Lee episode where somebody said, can't wait for there to be a podcast episode where Jesse Mae Peluso doesn't show up dressed like a homeless person. Oh, God. Well, I guess grief does a number on your fashion. Grief fashion should be a whole other episode. How people dress when they're grieving. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've seen that. It's a few celebrities. If I really had to pinpoint it, but I don't know. Grief couture? Grief, ooh. We should open up a shop. So we got a TikTok page. TikTok. uh, We got a clothing line, and we got a homeless AA. Death No, homeless, sorry. uh, Elder AA. Elder AA. Homeless, that's another thing, too. We have a lot of businesses we need to start. You might need to give up the real estate. I'm down. I'm fucking fucking (laughs) in. But uh, let's go see until things chill out with you, because I know you got a lot going on your plate. (laughs) Um, listen, look, again, it's one thirty-seven. Uh, so I, yeah. I want to do this for you. I would love to, I, I want to keep talking, but I want to be respectful part of your two. time. I would love to do a part two. Yes. I think, I think, um, I do my mom. Yeah. We got DDC right now. And then, um, M- DD dead moms, D- DMC, D- DMC. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It doesn't work so well. Isn't that weird how we say dead dad's club? Even, even, even a man's world and death. How about that? It's fucked up. I have a, I'm not going to say a riddle right now. We'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> terrible transition. Um, <laughs> Jessica, uh, you're, 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 you're incredible. I think, uh, you're the way you perceive things and get introspective and look at things. I think that makes sense as to why you're such a good comic and everything you're doing is successful because it's all kind of, it's correlated. So I appreciate you being on here. And, um, before we plug you out of here, I should, uh, I plan on trying to expedite this and maybe get it out Friday, yes. this Friday. So if, if there's anything you want to plug, if at all, um, I'll add everything, all your links or anything at yes. the bottom, but feel free to, um, say, as my friend plugged me to say, say any last words. 
Um, well, if you want to hear more on my experience with grief, I have a grief survival guide built into my podcast that is called Sharp Tongue. And it is each episode is numbered grief survival guide. So you can just scroll through and find those. I think we have like 20 episodes now. Um, and come see me live, jessiemay.com for tickets and Jessie May Peluso everywhere on socials. And I guess the last thing I want to say is that while death is a very scary experience, it's also a very liberating one. And I think we don't talk about the relief of grief and death enough. I think we sit in the sorrow. And while that is an important emotion to experience, I think it's also important to not feel guilty, feeling somewhat relieved, because there is that horrible feeling of knowing your parents are going to die one day. And for some reason, we're not allowed to feel relieved when they finally do. So even though my dad took a sweet-ass time towards the end, this guy's really just running up the bill. Please don't be so hard on yourself and realize that there are silver linings in the darkest days. I love that. I want to, why don't you give us the dead talk outro, whatever the hell that is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>